When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people have been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies Killed My Hometown. Okay, so I'm getting near the end of the discussion on distribution and retail chains from the price spreads report. And to me, this is the perfect time for this episode because maybe you haven't heard, but the Canadian Competition Bureau just announced a market study into the grocery store industry. And so why I say this is perfect timing is the grocery store industry is dominated by chain stores. And I'm interested to see if our current grocery store oligarchs are behaving the same way as they did in the 1930s. So stick around for this episode to learn what the chain stores were doing previously and what we can see if they and other large retailers are doing the same thing. And you'll hear me dive deep into one specific TV I still remember from when I worked at the Future Shop. So the behaviors the Price Spreads Commission was concerned about were divided really into two groups, mass buying and price concessions and competitive practices in retail trade. So the price concessions, the first one is really the dynamics between mass buyers and primary producers, wholesalers, distributors. The second is competitive practices, is the dynamic between mass buyers and other retailer stores. So I want to start with mass buying and price concessions. This includes things like trade, cash, and quantity discounts, as well as free deals and premiums, advertising allowances, and demonstrators. And the thing is, like, the commission has no issue, and I think I agree, They have no issue with any of these concessions being available. They felt that they are part of business competition. And I agree. Like if I go into home hardware and buy a truckload of insulation, I expect that I'll get a better price than somebody going in to buy an individual bag because it's going to cost that home hardware less to handle the material, store the material, pay for the inventory cost of keeping it. And some of those costs should be passed on to me. However, the commission in the 1930s had two other conclusions and caveats to add. First, to quote, When such concessions are given not in return for any service, not openly, and not to all on the same terms, they involve gross discrimination and become a powerful weapon by which mass buyers compete unfairly with their small rivals and use their mass purchasing power to take undue advantage of their weak suppliers. I agree, and the Commission thought as long as everyone has access to the similar discounts and knows what they are and how you achieve them, no problem. Second, the commission said, quote, It may be maintained that the acceptance of a contract by a manufacturer on the mass buyer's terms is sufficiently evidence it is profitable. End quote. Then they added this caveat. Such a view may be sound in respect to dealing between many competing small sellers and small buyers. It may even be true when the mass seller meets the mass buyer. It may be doubtful whether it is necessarily true of a bargain between one of many competing small sellers and one of the few mass buyers. So I take this to mean as long as the agreements are being made by equal parties and they're not being forced onto smaller supplier or retailer by a larger, more powerful company, then things are fine. You know, I shared the story from Charles Fisman's book, The Walmart Effect, about Levi's jeans and Walmart. But I remember years ago talking to a local steel roof manufacturer about who they supply to. I was looking to buy from them. 
And I asked if they supplied Kent building supplies. The roofing supplier said no. Kent only pays in 90 days, no matter what the supplier wants or needs. So if you're a small supplier, it is hard for you to carry the cost of the product for 90 days. Like, it's hard on your cash flow. And the other thing I can tell you, though, is that if you have an account with Kent and you owe them on 30 days from when you got the invoice, day 31, you're getting a phone call. I'll just put that out there. I know that's the fact. And the thing is, though, like, that's good business practice on Kent's part. You want to delay how long you can pay people and you want to get your money back just as quickly. And as long as everybody's on equal playing fields, you know, you can negotiate those things. But Kent basically saying, if you want to sell to us, we're paying you in 90 days is not a deal made on equal footing. So let's dig into what these individual behaviors are. First, trade discounts. So when the retail industry was full of wholesalers and retailers, wholesalers were charged a lower price by the manufacturer. The wholesalers then increased the price that they sold to the retailer. And the wholesalers played a key role. They sold the product, they handled the distribution of the product, they developed relationships with retailers. So the cost of providing these services were paid for out of the wholesaler's profit. So what the commission found is that chain and department stores were filling the wholesaler role and they justified or demanded wholesaler pricing from manufacturers. And I think we see that now too, right? Take the grocery stores. They're handling a lot of their own wholesaling. Back in the 1930s, the commission found the large mass buyers could get wholesaling pricing, but independent stores had to pay full price, even if they were allowed to buy directly from the manufacturers. So another one of the behaviors was free deals and premiums. Basically, you can get something for free if you buy another product at a certain price. Buy new DVD player and get a free movie. Buy $100 worth of books, get this blanket for free. Like, I think we've come across those quite often. And the commission identified one of the true purposes of this, or one of the things that happens from this, is it confuses how much things actually cost. Buy $100 worth of books, get a free blanket. Well, how much does a blanket cost? Right? Can I not take the blanket and just get a deal? Right? If the blanket's a $30 value, can I get $30 off my stack of books? I mean, we all know you can't. You got to take this blanket or nothing. That's sort of a hypothetical example, but today I went into Kent Building Supplies. On the way in was a giant sign offering a $50 Kent Building Supplies gift card if you buy $250 of Owens Corning insulation. And so this is a free deal, right? I can't go back and just say, well, I don't want the gift card. I want you to take $50 off my order of insulation. And they're just going to say, no, no, can't do that. You need the gift card. It confuses the price. And so it makes it hard for another competitor, another retailer competitor to compete on price because how do you compare this? Like, this is one of the things that happens. This is one of those confusions that creates in the market. Third one is cash discounts. Straightforward. If you pay in cash or you pay early, you get a discount. I mean, this makes total sense. It helps everyone's cash flow, incentivizes people to pay early. But the commission was concerned that if independent stores aren't allowed to buy directly from wholesalers that offer these cash discounts, then they will never be actually get the cash discounts. And the mass buyers will just, by default, have a better pricing power or a better gross margin on those products. Again, I don't think the commission cared if everybody got access to those cash discounts. And the last grouping in here are advertising allowances and demonstrators. So demonstrators are people from a manufacturing company coming to the store and showing the product, teaching customers how to use the product, all those sorts of things. Advertising allowances are basically rebates from the manufacturer to a retailer to cover excess advertising costs related to promoting their product. And again, this theory is a good idea as long as everyone is entitled to the same advertising allowance. But in the 1930s, the commission found that advertising allowances were ways to offer secret discounts and rebates 
in that most advertising allowances were based directly on volume of purchases, not actually on cost of advertising. So this is something I'm very curious to see if the Competition Bureau gets into investigate today's advertising allowances and paying for shelf space at grocery stores. Like this is something I'd really like them to dig into. So those were the behaviors between the retailer and the supplier. The commission concluded this section with, quote, When such concessions are given not in return for any service, not openly, and not to all on the same terms, they involve gross discrimination and become a powerful weapon by which mass buyers compete unfairly with their small rivals and use their mass purchasing power to take undue advantage of their weak suppliers. To say it differently, when we don't enforce rules for a fair and equal economy, the biggest retailer in the block can just bully the smaller retailers, smaller manufacturers, and they will win because of their size, not by being a better retailer. So now let's look at competitive practices in retail trade. These are the behaviors between competing retailers. And again, these are the practices that the Competition Bureau is looking into when they do their market study on the grocery store industry. The thing is, I like the philosophy the Commission brings to this part of their investigation. To quote, The mere fact that policies pursued by one organization are injurious to its competitors should not of itself condemn these policies. They must be judged by whether they contravene the generally conceived rules of ethical or fair dealing. End quote. They continue, The only basis upon which business practice can be classed as unfair is in relation to the public interest. End quote. For me, I think people paying a reasonable amount for food that allows a sustainable profit for grocers and primary producers is in the public interest. Dominant grocery chains using inflation to extract higher profits from regular people? Not in the public interest. So in this section, some of the behaviors found by the Price Spreads Commission were behaviors seen in the 1930s. And like I said, I keep saying nothing is really new. And this list here, to me, is another example. Because I think, and I've seen, dominant retailers still using the same tactics to exploit smaller chains and suppliers. So there are four behaviors in this section, but I want to run through three quickly, talk a lot about the fourth, and then mention briefly a fifth one that I think is new for us today. First one, deceptive packaging. Basically, mislabeling packaging so it's not reflective of what's actually inside. Short weighing, you know, selling somebody a kilogram of sugar and only giving them 900 grams. Third, misleading advertising. Basically, it's lying about your product. Interestingly, I think the Competition Bureau still does a good job policing these three issues. The fourth item from the Commission's report, I don't think we do a good job policing anymore. So that fourth item, let's dive into loss leaders. What are they? Loss leaders are typically like a product sold at a steep discount or at a really attractive price in order to attract people into the store. When I worked at the Future Shop, we had these cheap DVD players, like 30 bucks or 40 bucks go on sale all the time. And they'd be in a flyer would be like, limited quantities, come get one now. You know, these sorts of things. People would come in feeling like they had to come get it now. First, I'd be like, oh, we sell these for this price all the time. Or maybe it's 45 bucks. Like you're not getting as great of a deal as it sounds. But the point of the DVD player was to get people into the store because the hope is you're able to then sell more higher margin products. And so when I was working in the future shop, I was there 2004, 2006, we were very good at this. Did somebody come in? Okay, here's your $40 DVD player. Now let me show you the $40 in cables you need to make this work properly. And don't forget your product service plan. It's only $10 for to cover you for three years. Like we were very good at doing these things. The other thing that lost leaders do is to create the illusion of lower prices on all the other articles in the store. 
right? So one thing that I keep think of is the $1 hot dogs at Costco. I don't know if they're making money on those hot dogs or they're losing money on them. But I remember reading an article that the CEO of Costco was adamant that the price of that never changes. And using the loss leader theory, I think the reason for that is it creates an illusion that everything at Costco is at a lower price. Well, like the price of that hot dog hasn't changed in a long time. So therefore, maybe the materials all through the store haven't gone up. And it's a psychological thing that you want consumers to think of when you think of Costco. Walmart, I think, does the same thing with, for example, their everyday low prices tagline. For consumers, it's easier to process everything when you hear that tagline consistently. Then you see a loss leader as you go in the store just to assume that Walmart's got best prices. Nobody wants to think they're getting ripped off or not getting the best deal. And so you just make, what do they call them, heuristics? Like it's just a way to process and see the world. Well, Walmart, everyday low prices, that's a great low price. They've got to have low prices everywhere. Because otherwise, the only other thing you could do is start price shopping every single item in one of those stores and comparing every single item to make sure that you're not getting ripped off. It's nearly impossible to do. Think about all the stuff in the stores and prices are changing so much. Like it's almost just a way for consumers to be able to get through the world and really kind of feel good about themselves. Like I said, nobody feels good about being ripped off. And so the thing with loss leaders and products like that is consumers can get a great bargain and they will have a benefit from it, that they will be able to get something, you know, good for the lower price. But over the last 40 years, our analysis of antitrust and competition issues and those things stops there. Price for consumers is lower, all done. Nothing more to look at, nothing more to see. We're fine. Oh, we don't need to worry about or think about competitors or manufacturers. You know, we don't need to question, what are these loss leaders in this anti-competitive practice here doing to them? Yeah, we're good. Consumers are better off. We're all fine. But the thing is, the commission in the 1930s dives into this and talks about this. And they look at the impact of loss leaders on mass buyers doing a lot of loss leaders and discounting products significantly. The impact on manufacturers and other retailers. So take like any manufacturer. Over years, they build up a loyal following and a great reputation for the product. Then a mass buyer starts to use their product as a loss leader over a long period of time. They do it just for a weekend, no big deal. Everything carries on. Other retailers with the same product have to then reduce their price to compete and maintain their sales. So all of a sudden, the margin for retailers on this product is significantly lower. And what can happen is that over time, all the retailers start pushing different product to maintain their margins, or they're gonna need to get a lower price out of the manufacturer to maintain their margin. Either way, this will and could cause pain for the manufacturer of either lower prices being paid to them or lower quantities purchased. And when it comes to store and house brands, this dynamic can be exacerbated. I always think of Mastercraft tools at Canadian Tire. Like I do a lot of construction, so I come sort of from the construction industry. And so for me, my rule of thumb is to never buy Mastercraft tools at a regular price. They're on sale so often that their list price is irrelevant. To me, their actual price should just be the sale price. Because right now I went online, Canadian Tire is an 80-piece screwdriver set on sale for 80% off. It's on sale for 30 bucks down from 130. I mean, who doesn't like getting an 80% deal? I mean, who doesn't want that? You feel great. That's something you can tell your friends about. But if it's always on there, are you really getting an 80% deal? That's a different question, but it works great as a loss leader. But what happens to other tool manufacturers? Other tool manufacturers have to be able to produce a product to compete with this $30 screwdriver set. But it's not just the $30 screwdriver set, it's the perceived gain that consumers get buying it at 80% off. So if we assume the true retail price, in this case, is the $30 for the screwdrivers, is $30, not the 130 
Canadian Tire has to buy the product at a low enough price to make some money on each sale. This example is a little bit more complex because Mastercraft is the house brand for Canadian Tire. I don't think Canadian Tire manufactures it. I think they have somebody who manufactures it for them. But either way, they need to be able to buy it at a price where they can make some money out of the $30. And so even if you're a tool manufacturer of like a competing brand, other retailers are going to need homeowner tools in that same price range. So you have to start producing at that price point too. You either reduce your price or you reduce your quality or you create like a sub brand or like a lower quality brand so you don't dilute your main one. Either way, it's costing you money to compete with this loss leading that's being done by Canadian Tire. That's if we're just looking at like homeowner level tools. But I think as this happens on the homeowner level tools, it filters up to the contractor and the professional grade tools too. Because Mastercraft also has a premium line or maximum line, I forget what it is, and they're designed to compete with brand names like DeWalt, Milwaukee, Makita, Bosch, those sorts of things. And the thing is, the quality of the professional tool is better, but as the price of the Mastercraft tools decrease, the difference you get in value for the price from the Mastercraft tools to the higher-end tools decreases as well. I mean, like 30 bucks for an 80-piece screwdriver set is a great value. And if you're Milwaukee making screwdriver sets, what is the value proposal that you give for people to spend more money on screwdrivers. To do this though, like as a manufacturer, you need to increase your marketing budget or, you know, you've got to reduce your manufacturing costs to be able to compete on price better. Either way, this is going to cost you. Those costs are hard for a small manufacturer to absorb. It is hard for you to send demonstrators out to every single store across the country to show why your screwdriver is better than a Mastercraft screwdriver. Now, mind you, let alone the fact I can't think that Canadian Tire would actually let your demonstrator in the store, but that's a different thing. But larger companies are able to send those demonstrators out. When I think about this, like as price pressures on small manufacturers increase, what I would expect is that we see consolidation in the industry, either because the small manufacturers have to close because they can't compete on price, or they just get purchased by the bigger ones. And to me, I think that's what we are seeing. So out of the major tool brands, Makita and Hitachi are the only two large name independent tool companies left. But Hitachi is part of this gigantic international conglomerate. And good luck trying to find any of their products to buy anywhere. But here's just a quick sample of tool brands in consolidation, right? They own Stanley, Black & Decker, DeWalt, Porter Cable, Bostitch, Craftsman, among a few others. Tectonic Industries, TTI out of Hong Kong, owns Milwaukee, Ryobi, AEG, Hoover, Dirt Devil. Bosch owns Bosch, Dremel, Rotozip, OTC, many others. Like there's more, but a lot of the other companies produce industry-specific and niche tools. But I'll put a link in the show notes. So basically, over time, like this isn't a good situation for small manufacturers. To me, I see being run out of the industry and out of their business. But what about small and independent retailers? So this is a quote from the commission in the Price Spreads report. Quote, The competitors of the store using the loss leader are, however, the persons chiefly affected. End quote. So if you are an independent tool retailer and Canadian Tyler is selling their Mastercraft tools at 80% off, you need to do something to compete. The independent retailer can then offer a similar price and then compete on service. If they don't have access to the same pricing, then they have to choose to match the price and possibly lose money on every single sale or not compete on price and lose volume of sales. It's a tough spot for an independent retailer to be put into. When I worked at the Future Shop, I saw this happen. So I was there 2004 to 2006, and this is when like big screen TVs were switching from rear projection, like two feet deep, 300 pounds to flat panel screens. And so on my first year when I was working there, we got access to a Best Buy Future Shop exclusive 43 inch rear projection Panasonic TV, high def, everything. 
And our regular retail price was $2,200. TV like this went for 25, 27, 3,000 bucks. Like this was a smoking hot deal. But we would also put this TV on sale regularly for $2,000. And we had so many people coming in looking for this TV that I still remember the SKU for it. 1004232. That number and my student number from when I went to Dal are two I will never forget. I don't remember what our cost on the TV was, but I know we made money on it at $2,000. For the consumers, this was a great buy, great value. It was big screen, good aesthetics, reputable brand. It was bad news for our competitors because I know our competitors were blown away. They didn't have access to this TV at that price. And the rumors floating around were that our competitors couldn't even buy a similar TV for a retail price. So the cost of that TV to our competitors was more than $2,000 and we were selling that TV for $2,000 and making money. And this is where it gets tough because when we were selling that TV, I just went, oh, this is great. Look, like because we're so big, we're able to get this and we can pass it on and it's a great deal for our customers. And now when I stop and look back on it, I don't think so anymore. Well, no, I guess I should say it was a great deal for the customers and we did a good job looking out for them. I just think our competitors should have had access to that TV at that price as well. And then we all could have competed on service. Because the reality is most of our competitors went out of business. The other irony with this is, I think it was 2003, Future Shop also went out of business and everything just got rebranded as Best Buy. And this is one last interesting observation on loss leaders from the commission. So they understood at some point it is necessary for a store to reduce the price to clear out old stock or discontinue a line. So the commission didn't want to ban price reductions completely, but they did condemn the practice of loss leaders as unfair, promoting wasteful competition, and seriously affecting the income of certain classes of primary producers. That's, yeah, I think I agree with that one. There was a lot in this episode. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the commission's conclusions. I think there's three lines that are relevant to today. I want to spend the next episode on the commission's recommendations. Okay, and we've identified all these problems. Now what do we do? So these are the three quotes that stand out for me from the commission's conclusions about retail distribution. Quote number one. A sound regard for the national interest could not permit two or three concerns to dictate the method of retail distribution in the country as a whole. Right, and it was in episode 12 where I looked at the report, like less than a handful of our largest retailers do just an obscene amount of sales. So I think we're at this point where that the commission was concerned about the 1930s. Quote number two. The concentration in retail distribution already achieved has had certain undesirable effects. Socially, it has meant that the personal factor has largely disappeared with the inevitable weakening of the ideals of service to the community so long honorably associated with the local independent store. And the third quote. We believe that the abuses of large-scale distribution can be prevented without interfering with its legitimate development. At the same time, we feel that this development is not legitimate if it is made possible only by unfair competitive advantages at the expense of the smaller and less favored distributor. I will just leave as a final comment. I started off talking about the market studies of the Canadian grocery industry. Let's not forget they were charged with colluding to fix the price of bread for 15 years. Once again, thank you for listening. Please leave a rating and review and come back next week because like I said, I will get to the conclusions and what the commission suggested that we do moving forward. What are you doing in a small town after the movie shows through? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.